This is The Guardian. I'm Grace Dent and this is Comfort Eating from The Guardian. A podcast where we pay homage to the lesser celebrated foods in life. Because even as a restaurant critic, I believe the food that matters most is often that snack you cobble together when you're curled up on the sofa. Each week, I ask my guest to lift the lid on what comfort foods have seen them through their lives. Because you can tell a lot about a person from what they eat behind closed doors. Just a quick word, there will be some strong language in this episode. Hello, friends. Now, you find me actually on my hands and knees. I am wedged behind my sofa. I'm just doing a bit of tidying up. I've got a new episode of Comfort Eating to record, and I do like to have the place spick and span. I am trying to get rid of the mountain of cat hair, the swathes of it that are always blowing through my living room. Um, I've also been looking at my messages. Now, some of them are about comfort eating. Some people were asking for style advice. I mean, I don't know if you actually seen me. I only have two looks. Either very, very tight mafia wife dresses, or to be quite honest, I'm just lying down in pyjamas. But I'm very flattered. My one tip to give to you, carry a lint roller. Now, If you do ever look at me up close, I'm generally festooned in cat hair. I do take a lint roller with me everywhere. This morning, I was actually standing in the aisle on an Avanti train, just giving my arms and legs a quick go. Now, my guest today, I am so excited, is someone who I know loves cats as much as I do, because I've been stalking him on Instagram. And... I think he probably ought to give himself a quick roll with his roller before he leaves the house. It's David Bedeal, comedian, TV presenter, screenwriter and million copy best-selling author of children and adult books. No, not those type of adult books. His TV programmes include The Merry Whitehouse Experience, Fantasy Football League with his long-running comedy partner Frank Skinner. He is a bona fide comedy legend and he has been for absolutely decades. I can't wait to find out what he nibbles on when he's off stage and back home. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. David Baddiel, welcome to Comfort Eating. Thank you, Grace Dent. It's lovely to be here. Now, as well as being a writer, a presenter, a comedian, you're responsible for the ultimate ever optimistic England football song, Three Lions. Now, this is a song that you co-wrote 
as England's official song for the Euros in 96. Since then, it's been number one four times. It's been in the top 40 nine times. You must get, I don't want to talk about money, Mm. but you must get a solid paycheck every time the Euros or the World Cup comes around. It's brought you evergreen fame. Yeah. But what is the most gangster thing that it has actually bought you? Well, not money. So, for a start, I mean, it's, you know, I, I, it's got brought me and Frank Skinner, Andy and Brody of the Lightning Seeds, a fair wedge. But I can promise you, not certainly not since Spotify took over has it brought us much money. In fact, I'm going to quote a figure. So when England played Colombia in the 2018 World Cup, it was downloaded something like 4 million times, mm. for which me and Frank and Ian received from Spotify £1,200. Hang on a minute, that's nothing. I know, I know. That's the point. Well, like, it did, look, hey, it came out in 1996, so and it went platinum in 1996. Just to be clear, we've done okay. I'm checking my privilege here. It's done very, very well. I'm going to reframe my question. When it first came out on vinyl and you were making loads of money, <laughs> at any point did you just go and think, I'm just going to get gold teeth? I never thought about gold teeth. So not at any point have you ever bought a pair of £900 athleisure wear trousers from Bond Street. Well, let me tell you something just happened today uh, in terms of... Because I am from sort of lower middle class immigrant stock. um, And I've done all right in my life, but I find it quite hard, as does my wife, Morwenna Banks, who is from rural poverty in Cornwall, to actually flex anything. And yesterday... Two towels arrived that had a high thread count (laughs) and that were quite fluffy. And that's because we sat there the other day, having got out the bath, saying, why are we drying ourselves with these rags? Surely we can do better than this. And it never occurred to us in years and years and years. Every week... My guest shares with me their ultimate comfort snack. Now, this is the treat that they turn to when their soul is low Mm. on sunshine. Yeah. And it needs a little boost from the kitchen cupboard. Can you unveil your snack? It's in front of us in um, my (laughs) Harry and Meghan tea towel. Yeah, that's Uh, nice. Go and do it. Well, before I do it, I just want to say something, which is this is going to confuse some people who have a one-dimensional view of me. Mm Mm-hmm. It's going to confuse me even more because doing this, lifting uh, a thing that looks like this, particularly something ceremonial with food underneath, it reminds me of what Jews do at Passover. And Jews at Passover have matzah, which is unleavened Mm -hmm. bread, under something like this. Unfortunately, I have a bacon sandwich. (laughs) I shouldn't laugh. Oh, my God, that looks good. I mean, look. A bacon and egg sandwich. bacon and egg. Right. Talk me through the bacon and egg sandwich because I I think you've probably got very exacting standards about yeah. how it has to be done. Well, can I just say something? Always. When you say talk me through it, I'm already in trouble here because I really want to eat this. Oh, please, it, it, go well, ahead. Well, can I eat it? I can't eat and talk at the same time. You absolutely can. Okay. There is no shame in that. I want okay, so you. I have no impulse control in general in my life, especially around food. And this is my favourite comfort food and so I have to eat it. Do it, but, do it, do it. But, okay. Mm. Mm, this is a messy sandwich. Mm. Oh, it's really this good. is not. This is. Oh, that's good. Oh, I say. Uh huh. Do you need the bacon crisp? Yeah. Um. Do you mm. want to finish that? I can sense. <laughs> really? I can this. sense yeah. 
that the moment you started eating that sandwich, you thoroughly regretted that you had to do the rest of the interview. Yeah, I am regretting it. I've got to say, this is a good bacon sandwich. I tried to starve myself before I came here because I knew the bacon sandwich was coming. Right? I couldn't do it. Do you diet? I have done. I can't have given it up now. It's a good thing because if I'm right hungry, all the questions you've asked me so far would have just been gibberish. Always has to be white bread. Brown bread is just idiotic with a bacon sandwich. It's got to be... For me, I don't even like it toasted. Some people like it toasted. Mm. If you read, like, The Guardian, How to Make a Perfect Bacon Sandwich. Who are those wankers? Yeah, those wankers <laughs> will, de- <laughs> will definitely say one side of it should be toasted. Fuck that. Because it's the squishiness of the mother's pride, essentially, with the slight crispiness of the bacon that is part of the joy of it. Yeah. So, David, it's been a busy decade alongside penning several best-selling books for adults and children, fronting TV shows and writing plays. You've spent the last 10 years touring award-winning solo stand-up shows. In fact, you've packed up and set off on no less than nine tours since 2013. But on your 2021 comedy tour of the UK, something strange happened. You started a phenomenon posting pictures of your breakfast. Yeah, that's right. In hotels up and down the country on Twitter. And there was a really strident response to this. Of all the things you've achieved in your life, you've never been backwards in coming forwards with an opinion, right? (laughs) Yeah. All of my life, it feels like, since I was about 17. That's true. The first time I ever saw you. Please eat, please eat. So there's this very strident response about breakfast. What gets people most animated about a hotel breakfast? So this is what happened. When I was touring, I was trying to make a more simple point than it turned out the one that I ended up making, which is if you tour in Britain, whether you're in a band or mm. a comedian or whatever, and you're ordering a book tour and you're staying at a lot of British hotels, mm. what's available every morning? I mean, right. unless you're at very posh places. If you're at the Marriott or whatever, mm-hmm. you come down, you've probably had quite a bad night the night before because you've done a gig and you haven't slept very well or whatever. And there it is, the full English breakfast. I was at but- one this morning. No, were you? This morning. And I walked past... The tiny little frozen croissant that has yeah. been cooked at four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> the bowl of slightly stale Alpen. kind of Alpen. It's not Alpen. It's not Alpen. <laughs> it's never Alpen. <laughs> own brand little yeah, muesli. Own brand muesli. And then the the terrine that you open and it is the old congealed scrambled egg yeah, that was also you've got upsetting. to think that the, that the people that get stuck with the breakfast shift have to go in at about four o'clock and some of them are very angry about life and they're not making this with love people say that food is made with love there is no love made by somebody who's begrudgingly smoking a rothman's outside mm. now going absolute mm. bastards look <laughs> at them all yeah. so i love the fact that you started to really get people talking about this well what happened in the end was i was trying to say how is one supposed to like eat healthily mm-hmm. if one is on tour in Britain? Because here it is, bacon, eggs, uh, beans, sausages, waiting for you every morning, and I have no willpower. So I can't not eat this. And it's killing me, probably, to eat this every morning, which I was doing. But people weren't interested in my health. What they were interested in, and this is what it revealed, is the plating mm-hmm. of, the, of the full English breakfast. There was a, a fault line. In the British public, which is they are obsessed, and there are basically full English. Excuse me, 
I love That's this. a bit of bacon. This there is, there oh are full English God. breakfast police out there. You are the first person on Comfort Eating that has actually eaten at the point where you're regurgitating. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I may actually go to the kitchen and cook a bit more. Uh, So there are people who, you put a picture of a full English breakfast out there and they will go crazy because the eggs are touching the beets uh, or because the sausages are a bit overdone or because you've got some mushrooms on it and they don't like mushrooms or there's a huge fuss about whether beans should be in a ramekin or just on the plate or whether they should be there at all. And you get people having a nervous breakdown Mm. uh, because eggs are touching beans or whatever. And I think there's something about the happy, smiling face thing of yes. a full English breakfast if you get obviously the eggs in the right place and the sausages in the right place or whatever that is just so appealing you are very good every day at going on and you give people your breakfast they come back at you mm. with their funny 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 mm. happy ha 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 and it's lovely and it's joyous and it's fun and that's the great bit of social media isn't mm-hmm. it you know you're mm-hmm. like at one with the world yeah but then I used to look at you and it would be like two o'clock, three o'clock in the afternoon. And I'm like, David, you're arguing with people about eggs. And like, <laughs> and, it, and it's not fun anymore. It's turned into, you know, it's turned into these eggs obviously represent your views on the Thatcherite <laughs> government of yeah. 1985 yeah. or whatever. I know that you started to document this, you, your addiction to social media. I noticed that happening because I was the same as well. Mm. I've been there. I think we've both been through the mire with uh, with using social media. Yeah. What made you realise it was a problem? Um, well, I think my family a bit. My family would tell me, you know, get off your phone, Dad. You're supposed to be more engaged. Uh, but I think also I used to think of it, I think, as somewhere where you could make jokes, which was mm. sort of very important. You could start a funny thread like about Full English Breakfast and you could, which obviously I found myself doing, deal with quite important stuff like, say, Mm anti-Semitism in a way that would obviously lead to trolling, but somehow or other you could still get your point across. And then gradually I realised, oh no, it's sort of not that anymore, and especially now. I will still say the odd thing, but I'm not, I don't look at responses at all anymore. And it's been much better for me mentally, but also I think in terms of the way that place is now, I just don't want to spend all my time fighting against the same people and hearing the same people shout back. I've eaten my sandwich, by the way. I will donate half of mine. Um, no, I'm all right for the minute. I <laughs> but think. are you, though? <laughs> I, I want to eat that. I really want to eat the other one. But I'm going to leave it for the minute. Let me take you back okay. to the beginning of your comedy career. Yeah. <laughs> I knew you couldn't resist it. I could. I okay. You left Cambridge University in 1986 as vice president of the Cambridge Footlights, and with a double first class degree in your back pocket. What's the plan? I was going to be a comedian. Really? Yeah, I've never had a proper job, uh, which is weird, particularly as my kids now both are in working in cafes and stuff. What, not once ever? I'm not, I've only ever done in terms of proper jobs, and they're both through my mum. My mum got me a job knocking down a wall at the vintage magazine shop in Soho because of a, a mate of hers around the shop, half of which was porn. Uh, and I only had like a hammer, and my mate Jeremy Jacobs had another hammer, and we knocked down a wall. I did that for a week. 
And then another week, her stall, selling golfing memorabilia called Golfiana, for one week was at the basement in Liberties. And I looked after that, but I didn't know how to work the till, so I didn't sell anything. You have never been in a corporate environment. You have never been to like a mince pie jingle and mingle breakout session where you've had to <laughs> speak. Do you know, you've never done That's anything. not something sexual, what you just said. No, 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 you don't get, you're not, these days you're not allowed to have sex at the mince just pie jing- jingle. <laughs> just jingle and mingle. <laughs> mingle. Sounded to me like some kind of dogging. With, um, with these... No, Would I've we... never, I've never done it, and I feel bad in a way. You're fascinating, but that's because You're like the royals or something. The royals have worked harder than you. Well, there's two things. At least they've, at least they have. Yeah, but to can go... I just, can I just say it's not like... comes and come from privilege. We didn't have any money. My dad had been made redundant. It's just what. Well, so uh, no, I, I had a grant to do a PhD, which I did at London University. I was doing it and doing comedy at the same time. And back then, a grant to do a PhD. You could survive on that. You're literally like an advert for the Tory party to never, ever bring back grants. You literally came out with your double first and you were like, I'm going to be a stand-up comedian. Yeah. On, so, and then so I was working on the London Cabaret circuit and within about eight months, I was comparing the comedy store. You were, but you were working on the cabaret circuit. How, mm. like, you had a 15-minute bit and you went out yeah. and just did it at cabaret. Yeah, just to be clear about something, I came out of Cambridge University just after... The time when, if you'd been in the Cambridge Footlights, you were just on telly. So Stephen Fry, Hugh Laurie, all those people, they came out in 1981. Mm -hmm. And they had a show. I can remember watching it. They had a show based on their Footlights May Week review show that was on BBC Two. Yeah, a bit of Fry and And bang, they were there, right? Uh, By the time I came out in 1986, alternative comedy had completely taken over comedy. It was much better to have gone to Manchester University. And I can remember, I phoned up the comedy store when I came out of Footlights... And I remember phoning them and them saying, have you had any experience in comedy? I was just trying to get an open spot. And I said quite proudly, I, I was vice president of the Cambridge Footlights. They put the phone down. <laughs> so then I had to just go on the cabaret circuit, which basically involved going to places all over London, to shit pubs all over London, doing you know open spots and door splits and whatever. And yeah, and, it, and I was on the cabaret circuit for five years. But you're still at some level... Furious about this, aren't you? I'm not furious about having done it. I'm actually really pleased that I did the cabaret circuit. One of the best moments of my life uh, was I've been doing the comedy store for about a year, in about 1989. And Kim Kinney, who used to run the, the bookings there and, and ran the place with a rod of iron, a little Scottish bloke, he came into the dressing room mm-hmm. and he said, just after I'd done a really storming set, we're going to move you up to Compare next week. And I remember thinking that's amazing because for me right alexi sale and Mm. all those people were the people who i looked up to and they had compared the comedy store so i'm really pleased i did that what i'm not pleased about is the assumption that because i went to cambridge that i had an easy ride into tv do you think that the going up to compare was that your big break no, the break, my break was that, um, yes. so me and Rob Newman, mm. uh, who was also on the cabaret circuit, um, we were doing stuff together, but also separately doing stand-up, and we were writing together, and then suddenly they asked me and Rob and a bunch of other people, Punt and Dennis, but also Joe Brand and Mark Thomas and all these people to do a show, and that was the Mary White's experience on Radio 1, which had five series on Radio 1, and that was that was really the break. This goes to television. It's yeah. your first major TV gig, writing and performing. It's a four-person 
sketch show yeah. there's you there's rob newman there's steve punt there's hugh dennis yeah. all still around yeah. doing doing their thing see i lived through this mm. i don't want to embarrass you no no but I, I, you're not embarrassing i lived through this <laughs> yeah. i remember videoing it on my you know dusty vhs and just playing it again and again it's this massive hit you go do live tours there's the catchphrases, the characters that are still in mainstream culture. You're suddenly very famous. You're a teen idol. <laughs> <laughs> Me You're and Rob Newman were, were the first comedians to do Wembley Arena. That was the sort of was, pinnal, look, pinnacle of it. Did you go on on hoverboards or skateboards? No, he did. So he was always more straightforwardly rock and roll than me, uh, being very, very good looking and just a bit more mental. Uh, and he came on to Wembley on an electric skateboard. <laughs> he was wearing a kind of cape and an electric skateboard. And we left the stage in our History Today characters, which for anyone listening doesn't know, these two old professors mm-hmm. who used to slag each other off like primary school, school children by saying, see that piece of flob over there? That's you, that is, <laughs> right? And though we went off dressed <laughs> as those two on a bicycle mm-hmm. in terms of excitement. Wembley Arena was amazing. I always say that when you went out and did that at Wembley Arena, I remember the kind of shock in the media that, comedians could do that yeah. i think you were the first yeah, we were. people to do that to kind of combine like the brashness the swaggeringness the sexiness of pop stars and but you were going out and going that's you that is there was a sort of slight sexiness to it and yeah. it didn't feel like actually where i'd grown up doing comedy because the cabaret circuit felt much more like agitprop much more like everyone's very political, it's kind of serious, even when it's funny, and there's a kind of slight dustiness to it, Mm. and it wasn't very glamorous, right? And then I think towards the end of the 80s and the start of the 90s, that shifted a bit, and we were part of that shift. Suddenly it became less political and more starry. Have you ever snogged an Appleton? I really have never stopped in Appleton. So one way in which I've really, really not flexed fame is sexually, right? And really? I, yeah, I'm really Come oh, on. No, no, I'm, you were allowed to yeah. then. We were allowed no, well, we to. Were, I know. True. That was the only good thing about that. You know, we looked <laughs> disgusting. We looked awful. Yeah. But, you you know, you were yeah, so allowed I, to. You could go missing. There was no phones. Yes, there was no pictures. It's all true. But what I... So I... When I was young, I went out with the same person from when I was 16 to when I was 27. I went out with the same woman uh, and lovely woman, but that was too long for me when I was that age. I just didn't know how to split up with anyone. Splitting up with people just seemed like really, really difficult. Oh, my God. You're that guy that just dates you out of politeness for a decade. For a decade. (laughs) But splitting up with people. Is there something wrong with that? Is there something wrong, David? No. (laughs) It's fine. It's fine. I'm having a great time. Okay, well, she might be listening to this, so I'm not going to go into too much detail. But I do think that I don't understand it. I still don't understand it. If I did have sex with someone uh, after a gig, I would think... You have to have a sliver of ice in your heart to be properly promiscuous. And I always found it really impossible to say, and now I never want to see you again. So I would end up in another relationship. And also I did fall in love very, very quickly. Now I at least am not like a lot of my compatriots who I believe wake up every morning at about four o'clock sweating with anxiety, thinking who did I get my cock out in front of in a hotel corridor in 1992?
Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. We were, my production team were, we were talking about you yesterday hmm. for, for this meeting. And I said to them in the middle of the meeting, in about 1996, I once met you. Did I try it on? No. <laughs> well, there you are, you see. The I should have done. The absolute opposite, right? <laughs> I said to them, I once tried to chime up. He was having absolutely fucking none of it. Well, that's, right. that's so wrong of me, you see. I now deeply, deeply I regret that. No. I was fit You're then. very fit now, Grace. Thank you, but, but I was but actually, no. everything was pointing in the right oh. way then. It wasn't just like good girdle, we missed right? That. And like, I, it was a, it was in a bar in North London. Yeah. And I remember just going, oh, hi, blah, blah, blah. And you just kind of got your beers and walked off. And I'm that so is sorry. it. But this is what I'm saying. And Actually, now, 2024, you knew when I said something, you knew there was not, there was no shit on you whatsoever because you haven't done anything. <laughs> well, actually, walking away from you, and you would have been like someone I would definitely think was fit in Aww. 1994 or whatever. Yeah. I would have seen you and thought, oh, I need to walk away from this because I was monogamous. Yes. And and so I had to avoid situations like that. How old were you, though? You must have been about... I don't know, in my 1994. I was like... Yeah, 20... Like 30. Yeah. Late 20s. I can't forgotten how old I am. 30. 1994, I've been 30. Hang on. You you would have been, what, 22 or something? Yeah, something like that. Oh, now we're sitting oh, here slightly thinking it's terrible that we missed this opportunity. We we're go. having this awful imagine, sad imagine how, moment. Imagine how happy we could have been imagine. with our you really joint like anxiety <laughs> you really and like mental cats. quests for fame all in the same house. Yeah, that would have been great. Cats and food. Just loads of cats, just cat hair yeah. and a faint smell of cat weed. Just both standing <laughs> out in the garden looking for stray animals. So I'm imagining you on a classic night out. Perhaps you've fallen out of the Groucho, maybe Damon Alban has thrown up in your hat. Probably Alex James is trying to get you to buy into his cheese company. Yeah. What are you eating on the way home? <laughs> okay, so so my main comfort food, not just in the 90s, uh, a sort of big comfort food is curry. Um, and uh, that's... Because, I mean, I, I love curry in general, but there is a sort of specific thing, which is 
we never went out to eat at all when I was young. Mm. We, we, my dad went mad about money around about sort of 1980 because he got made redundant. And because my dad was an incredibly truculent bloke, no one would give him another job. And he ended up selling dinky toys in a market for the rest of his life and making no money. And so we never went out to eat. We never went on any foreign holidays or anything like that. And the first time I can remember ever going somewhere, it was a place called the Shah Bar in Hampstead, which he, he used to call the Shag Bag because my dad <laughs> always had to have funny names for places. And it was a curry house, which yeah. is still there. Yeah. And just thinking, this is amazing. David, can I take you back now to your childhood in Dollis Hill, London, in the late 60s, early 70s? You had two brothers. And your parents were both Jewish. Your mum, Sarah, was a refugee from Nazi Germany. And your dad, Colin, was from a working class family in Swansea. He gained a PhD in chemistry and worked with Unilever. So you've got German, Welsh and Jewish cultures in the home. Does this translate into what your mum is cooking? Not properly. So, because she was a terrible cook. So she tried to. I do remember her cooking chicken soup, which obviously is a big Jewish thing, but it was basically just a big vat of water in which she'd thrown the occasional claw. That's sort of it, right? And it was just tasteless and like whatever. And then also every so often she would cook roast, which is not very Jewish, but that might have been an attempt to assimilate. It's like we'll have Sunday roast, which she would overcook to such an extent that I still now think of the sort of meat there as like, as hard as a house brick. Yes. And I, I've got a bit of a thing now about that, which is I can only have meat sort of dangerously rare because in reaction to that. But all families really only have about three or four dishes. They have time and time again. So if you're not at the Shah Bar, what is, what is an average thing that your mother's cooking? Wednesday night you're getting from school. The main thing I remember about my mother's cooking is that she would sometimes tease us about pudding. She would say, I've got quite an exciting pudding, and it would always be a fucking tangerine. Some tinned peaches. It would be that. It would never be, you know, lemon meringue pie. Things I'd never even just heard a, of then. Just a Sara Lee Gatto or yeah, something. Oh, like God. just a Viennese. Sara Lee Gatto like, for me, it would have been really heaven at the time. Like, okay. they were they were about eighty nine pence. Yeah. And you could get they were always in the supermarket in the freezer bit, but just taking off that white plastic thing mm-hmm. what the, and then the chocolate would have all clung to, I was just amazed. I got one the other day it wasn't Sarah Lee but it was very similar banoffee pie that I got from Sainsbury's yeah. and it was frozen and I did a thing I don't know if you ever do this like I just want to eat this now so I put it in the microwave not on defrost but just on full power and then it was all over the place and I said to my son I'm going to think of this as something posh I'm going to think of it as deconstructed <laughs> banoffee pie mess and then ate most of it You're one of three brothers and two out of the three of you have made careers out of being funny. Yeah. So back then, was it a funny house? It was a funny house. Uh, My dad especially was really funny. Very angry man, very Welsh, very shouty. Uh, I think I said at his funeral, I said my dad was a lover of football food and shouting, who the fucking hell is this now every time the phone rang? (laughs) But... He was a very do funny Do you bloke. do that now? No, no. I, I, I'm very unangry. I, I, in every way, the, the cycle of not abuse, but of sort of bad behaviour in my house, I have not repeated it. I have reacted against it. So that. my mother was deeply self-dramatising and I am 
unbelievably unself-dramatizing and my dad was really angry and I'm almost never I don't like anger I don't like to get angry or whatever um did you say but he was funny he this was really stops funny. now with regards to no, your no, parents I, behavior did no, you go no. like this stops now no I just didn't find, I couldn't find it in me to be like that um oh. at all and especially oh. like so I'm obsessed with truth right I'm obsessed 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 I don't really have any kind of mantras of how I live my life except a sort of on the spectrum need to be honest all the time and that's what I'm doing now you know when you ask me mm. questions I don't think about how to answer them I say them because I feel really uncomfortable within any way framing or curating who I am because uh, my mother used to do that all the time the golfing thing the most extreme thing my mother fell in love with this golfing memorabilia salesman and then decided like literally overnight that she was obsessed with golf right uh, because my mother had all sorts of issues to do with being a refugee from Nazism and not knowing what her life should be right because her life should have been something completely different. It, it should have been this really actually rather beautiful life in Prussia in which she would have been quite fated and maybe some kind of semi-aristocratic princess. It wasn't that. It was completely destroyed. Mm. And the only way she could find the shards of it, I think, was in what was around in Cricklewood in 1975. And one of them was this golfing memorabilia bloke. And so she became obsessed with golfing memorabilia. And all the time, I kind of knew as a kid, A, I knew she was having the affair because she would tell everyone, but B, I kind of knew this isn't you. Was you don't like golf. What are you talking about? And I think that's why I, I need to be truthful all the time. How old were you when you realised that she was having the affair? I think I knew about it when I was sort of 13 or 14. The only person who didn't know about it, amazingly, was my dad. My dad managed to sort of not know about it. It's a brilliant, brilliant example of denial for his whole life. He sort of never really accepted that my mum was obviously having an affair. Let me ask you a few more questions about your family and then I'm going to talk to you about memoir. Your brother Ivor, he's only 18, he's only 18 months older than you. Yeah, Dan, my other brother, is 18 months younger than me. And you have said with Ivor that he parented you mm. more... Then, then your parents. That's, yeah, it's 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 a really lovely thing to say. Is that do you, do you mean that? He, no, completely, not completely. If you live in a house, if you've been brought up in a house which is quite dysfunctional, which mine really was, mm. there was no actual what you consider abuse, but there was Olympian levels of neglect and transgression and mm. bound, boundaries that shouldn't have been crossed and whatever. Then you need someone else. To sort of make you feel secure. And with me, it was unquestionably my older brother. And Ivor Cooks? Yeah, my secondary school was quite a long way away. Mm. It was in Elstree. I'd get up at like 6 o'clock or 6.15 and my parents wouldn't get up uh, because they were, you know, parenting wasn't a word then, right? They were just... Where are they? They're in bed. They're in bed. They're in bed or my mum's in another bed. Uh, They're just not there. They They just didn't get up. So Ivor... Ivor would be going to his own school. It was not that like Ivor got up specially, but yeah, he would make my breakfast. And also, but the, I, hang on, but this. So, I mean, I'm not a psychotherapist, but this is where the this is where the breakfast thing comes from. Yeah, I think that probably is. I've mentioned because, breakfast again, haven't I? Because you, yeah, your, da- your parents weren't there, but no. your brother was. Yeah, and he used to cook you a breakfast. Yeah, it was quite often bacon sandwiches. I think. So yeah, no, definitely. Ivor is someone who I, I think of very with great unconditional love in the yeah. way that uh, like I sort of feel very conditionally 
in terms of my parents, who I think I celebrate in my head and I celebrate in this show, mm. my family and in this book. But part of what I'm doing in that show and in the book is saying to celebrate someone, especially when they're dead, don't just say they were wonderful. Mm. Say how absurd and ridiculous and flawed they are mm. because that will bring them back to life mm. in a way that just saying that they're wonderful doesn't at all. It erases them out of existence. But either I do have a slight... I mean, he's, you know, he's got all sorts of issues, but I do have a sort of sense that he's wonderful. I Does think. he still cook now for you? Not for me. <laughs> no. No, Ivor hasn't cooked for me for a while. But he is also, <laughs> when you asked me before about funny... I think he's very important with me and funny because he played me when I was about 13, Derek and Clive live, yes. uh, which was the Peter Cook and Dudley Moore bootleg that mm. was knocking about around about then. It was incredibly filthy and incredibly obscene, which was probably much more important to me than punk rock in terms of this is a type of comedy that feels like it touches the deep Tourette's part of me. David, in your many children's books... Sweets feature yes. with a kind of Roald Dahl esque delight. How big a thing was sweets in your childhood? So, so I have an incredible sweet tooth. Mm-hmm. Is I can't eat a meal without wanting there to be a dessert. For me, a meal without a dessert is like a sentence without a full stop. It just yes. feels unended. And I'm wandering around thinking something's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> to close that off, I need sweetness. And so I like pudding enormously, but I also like sweets and will have sweets if there's no pudding as my pudding. What sweets? Specifically, I like more than anything sour sweets. Oh. Right. Now, I love sour sweets. You know, there's a whole market for sour sweets yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. The, the, Amongst perverts. Well, <laughs> I don't mean I don't like the ones called I mean, Toxic Death and stuff like that, but I love it was a big thing in our family, like lemon things. And that might be the only thing that my mum cooked that I think was genuinely nice and that we all looked forward to and that wasn't just a tangerine, which she used to cook pancakes with lemon and sugar. Okay. And the sour sweetness of lemon and sugar, I really like that in any circumstance, and that's what I want from a sweet. I used to get in a paper bag, this is very British now in nineteen fifties, but from a newsagent next to Dollar Hill Station, I used to get a paper bag full of apple drops. Yes. And in my mind they were the perfect combination of sour and sweet. You live in North London with your wife, the comedian and writer Moena Banks, and your two grown up children, Ezra and Dolly. Who is cooking when you're all together? Ezra. Ezra's a brilliant cook. Um, He's really turned into a brilliant cook. And he's quite obsessed with food. Mm. Uh, He watches, that's something which I really don't do, which is he watches Instagram reels Mm. of people cooking and then he follows Mm. and he cooks brilliantly. Dolly's also a very good cook, but she's pretty militantly vegan. Mm. So because I do eat meat, I'm more likely to be fed by Ezra. Morwenna cooks a tiny bit, but hardly ever. Uh, Morwenna is not interested, I would say, in food. Uh, Morwenna, who is Catholic and from a very rural working class background and very committed to work and being good. Morwenna is probably just the most good person I've ever met in my life. I happen to be married to her, so that sounds biased, but she is absurdly good. Mm. Part of that is that she doesn't really have like things like, oh, I really must have nice food for myself because that's just not part of her remit. She eats quite a lot of sort of fake ham out of the fridge. Just stands and squeaky, eats Squeaky, do you know that? She yeah. really likes squeaky, which is that fake ham. It's not very nice, and she just this eats is, it out of the fridge. And it's basically her, her thinking, I need to be doing something important and good and nutritious and useful. That's how she thinks. She's kind of a saint. I mean, She'll you, hate me saying all that, by again, the way. Again, one of those, like, Moana Banks, to me, 
as just being one of the most prolific writers and actors yeah. all of my life. And, and she will not buy herself a nice towel <laughs> or even put fake ham onto a plate. Well, when I, buy, buy, I mean, I think of myself as someone who has not flexed enough the fact that I have, you know, I am famous and I have done well for myself. I haven't flexed that enough. Well, when I, is extraordinary. She's just like a stoic, really, and just doesn't think, how can I make it things really luxurious and nice for myself? It's never, never there. And so I'm trying quite hard now to say, no, no, we have to have nice towels. We have to go somewhere really nice on holiday because that's, you know, we can do that and we'll be sad if we don't do that. We both wrote about our fathers. My dad had dementia. Your father had a form of dementia, Pick's disease. And uh, I almost couldn't look at what you were doing because you almost documented it as it was going along. And I wrote about it and I held, I held back quite a lot. There was parts in my book where I just said, and I can't, I, I can't actually tell the truth about what happened on this day. The thing about Pick's disease is it's not like other types of dementia. It's a frontal lobe dementia, which means that you become very disinhibited. Uh, and when the um, geriatrician, you know, neuro, neuro, neurologist said to me, the symptoms of Pick's disease are, he said something like disinhibition, a tendency to obscenity, laziness, irritation. I said, sorry, does he have a disease or have you just met him? <laughs> Because it was really like a disease that just sounded like this is just my dad, magnified by 100. And that's what he became. He became not, certainly in the first part of it, not that thing where it's dementia, so we've lost him. No, he's turned into a fucking spitting image puppet. You and your brother, you go out and you take him on trips out in his wheelchair. Yeah. Where'd you go? There is a place in Pinner, a salt beef bar that we used to go to with my dad. And he used to really like it there. Except... He wouldn't leave sometimes. <laughs> sometimes, like, we'd eat the meal. And obviously, my dad doesn't remember how long he's been there. So quite a lot of the time, you know, he'd think, but we've just arrived. And no, no, we've been here for two hours. We've got to go. And because my dad could smell the salt beef, even though he'd eaten, he would think, no, no, I want my salt beef. You know, you've eaten your salt beef. <laughs> Let's go. And we'd have to drag him out, get the waiters to help sometimes to drag him out. <laughs> One time, we dragged him out. We put him in the car, right? And then we didn't realise the keys were in the car. And he was just stuck in the car and we oh had to God, get the no. AA to come and let him out, yeah. Oh my <laughs> All God. of this stuff like, just went on in our lives. You've got to laugh, though. When I know that sounds really glib, but I that's the only thing that, that got me through it all. Yeah. My dad was obsessed with saying rude things to women when he had dementia, but I always say that he got his dream at the end in that... He was put into a care home right at the end where he was completely surrounded by young women mm. and uh, we had to have an appointment to see him. And I think that was his, That's that's brilliant. the absolute <laughs> dream. <laughs> We've got a wrap up. Yeah. David, my final question is the most serious of all. Right. You once said... You feel similarly to the American writer John Updike, who suggested that as you get older, food starts to replace sex mm. as your main pleasure center. Mm. What food most replicates the heady thrill of 90s <laughs> wild sexual abandon for you? Well, 
it's got to be this specific bacon sandwich because the key element of the 90s was excess, wasn't it? It's like there's never enough sex, there's never enough drugs, I've got to have more. And I look at this plate, I've basically eaten more bacon sandwich than any man is ever supposed to eat. So I'm just going to say the obvious answer, which is a very well-made bacon sandwich with egg and brown sauce. I believe you. <laughs> I feel quite grubby looking at that so plate I. now. With I, feel the, I, I feel the self-loathing. So There's a very does. post-coital feel about that it is, it is. plate now, isn't there? I feel almost medieval looking at that. David Baddiel, get out of my house. <laughs> Thank you, Grace. <laughs> Thank you for comforting with me. It was lovely. Thank you. I'm still going to eat a bit more. <laughs> this episode of Comfort Eating was produced by Ruth Abrahams. The executive producer is Lucy Greenwell. The music was written by Axel Cacoutier. Visuals by Sophie Harrow. Mixing and sound design by Solomon King. If you love this podcast, then you'll love my book, Comfort Eating. It's a slice of joy sprinkled with nostalgia about my family, stories of the making of this podcast and recipes which will leave you, well, frankly, bewildered. Finally, go on, leave us a review and you can follow or subscribe so that you never miss an episode. This is The Guardian.